thanks for watching our podcast. Here at Spear Consulting, our services include business strategy and human resources consulting. In HR, we offer executive search, executive coaching, and work psychology consulting. Please visit us at spiritmco.com, where we fulfill our clients' dreams virtuously. Enjoy your show. Welcome back to the Leading Virtuously podcast. So excited to be able to share this thought leader today, my brother in Christ, Sean Tierney. Uh, Dr. Sean Tierney, thank you so much, Sean, for being with us. First question always out of the gun is, who are you? Uh, first of all, thanks, Chris, for having me on. It's a privilege and an honor to be on the podcast. Uh, I've seen a few episodes. I've been thoroughly impressed so far. And again, I've. Uh, who am I is a great question. And it really derives by my relationships, first and foremost. So first, I'm a child of God. Uh, second, I am a husband uh, married to a beautiful wife of 26 years, Miriam, and the father of five wonderful children, ages 12 through 22. And then in addition to that, I am a cardiologist in private practice, board certified in medicine, pediatrics, adult cardiology, and clinical electrophysiology. And then also a co-founder of a classical Catholic high school in the suburbs of Chicago. So those are the things I'm currently defined as. Awesome. Well, thank you for walking <laughs> through that. And kudos to you and Miriam for raising the five beautiful uh, children that you have. Got to meet each of them in different times and, <clears throat> and wildly impressed in the, the work that you've done to raise really humble and loving kids that are uh, just kind and, and compassionate and generous with their time. And uh, you guys have done an amazing job. So excited to, you know, beyond, I don't know if we've really had the opportunity to dig deep into like the, the day job work that you do, but in essence, you know, seeing some of the, you know, the spillover of your leadership of the work that you and Miriam do in the home front and, and seeing the leaders that you're raising as well, is just so encouraging to, uh, to see that and excited to really dive deeper into the leadership side too. So Sean, can you tell us a little bit about how you got to this leadership position that you're in? Uh, tell us your story. So I started uh, in Albany, New York, went to school there for eight years. And it was in a program of medicine designed to create a more humane doctor. So in my undergraduate, I was accepted early into medical school. And part of that was to minor in a humanities and also do mission work. So I was able to minor in English and philosophy in my undergraduate work and then do a mission trip to Oaxaca, Mexico, where I uh, worked in an orphanage for two months, my junior summer of undergrad. And that's and where that's we where met I... originally, right? <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> I was just I'll trying to beat you there. I was just trying to beat you there in case you took the dig. I did it. I did it. I wasn't going to go there. Uh, but that's where I met my wife. Uh, she was uh, a uh -huh. student at the University of Illinois who signed up for the same trip. We were 10 college students living among the poor and dirt roads, showering every three days. Uh, it was just a wonderful opportunity. And, and then in my uh, second mission trip, I went to Chicago. 
uh, worked at the Infant Welfare Society one summer uh, doing vaccinations and public health uh, initiatives with the pediatric population in the very poor uh, parts of uh, inner city Chicago. And so that led to my uh, postgraduate training, which I landed a residency and fellowships at Loyola and started to grow in virtue and leadership, was a junior faculty member. And then when we discerned as a family, uh, you know, we looked great on paper at that time. My wife was a practicing OBGYN. We had a boy and a girl, two children but we were two ships passing in the night. One of us was always on call. So she discerned that she wanted to stay home. And that was one of the best decisions we made as a family. We had three more beautiful children after that. It brought peace to our home. And then I jumped to a private practice uh, where I joined, uh, where I'm a partner in a group of 24 physicians. Uh, we're still private. We're one of the last groups in Illinois to still be a private business and not part of a corporation that's bought out our practice. And that gives us the autonomy uh, and individuality to take care of the patient and not just try to meet deadlines and, and financial incentives, uh, but just to deliver good quality health care. And I've been in that role now for better part of 16 years, um, was medical director of an EP lab uh, in Blue Island in a hospital that's since closed due to financial difficulties, which is a great time. But we're on staff at 10 hospitals in the area, uh, delivering great quality uh, heart care. Awesome. And can you tell us the, the uh, Chesterton story too, of how that came about? So it, as we've always been intentional in raising our kids, and didn't want to settle for the status quo. And that's led us down a journey from using parochial schools to independent Catholic schools to even homeschooling. But high school is a, is a different animal and there's such a social environment. And we looked around at all the local options and we just wanted something more. It seemed every school had, were great in one aspect, but missing in some other aspect. And we came across this Chesterton model, heard about it first on relevant radio Dale Alquist had founded it originally in 2008, and we went to a fundraiser. They were trying to start another school in the Chicago area, so we got to meet him. It was at that meeting, a, a priest friend came up to me and says, you need to do this in the southwest suburbs, and that call just pierced my heart, and it just echoed, and it just seemed like it was straight from uh, the voice of God, so I Took that very serious, uh, put together a team, uh, dear friends of ours, the Bulls, and a couple other interested parents. We just had some interest meetings first, and then uh, there was a great interest. Uh, we even reached out to Cardinal George at the time to get some advice from him, and we just had a tremendous outpouring of people that wanted this type of education in the western suburbs of Chicago. We were able to raise the funds, which is something I'm uh, horrible at doing uh, and very uncomfortable asking people for money. Uh, and it all came together. It's just been a, a miraculous work of God to see this. We're now in our sixth year. We started with 30 kids. We were in the basement of a Presbyterian church in Downers Grove. And then now grown to 112 
wow. students. It's four years of classical education. And when you look at all the great minds from Alexander the Great to Aristotle, Thomas Aquinas, the Wright brothers, our founding fathers, they were all classically educated. They all read the great books. They studied Western civilization, philosophy. They learned how to think. Um, and somehow in the last hundred years, education has got off the tracks and it's, it's now just rote memorization. It's taken all the fun out of it. Uh, we have to get back to just telling great stories. And it's, it's done in a Socratic method. And it's four years of philosophy, four years of theology. Everybody has to act in the play. Everybody has to learn how to dance. Everybody has to sing in the choir. And it's four years of art. So even if they can't become a great artist, they can at least appreciate what goes into a great work of art and know some of the history behind it. And to see the, the families that this, this model attracts is just from all over. Some people drive an hour and a half from, from all parts of the greater Chicago area to, to come join us in this adventure. And it's just been a beautiful thing to be a part of. Wow. <clears throat> Absolutely love that story. And, uh, you know, from humble beginnings, like you said, in, in a basement of a church to, to where you are today, that's, that's such a fast growth as well over a six-year period. And, you know, the, the numer like the just number of lives that you're touching through that ministry, I'm sure is just incredible. So thank you for the work that you and your wife are doing by saying yes to God and being used in that way. Um, I also uh, just was thinking about, you know, the fact that like, I feel like we were destined to become friends, Sean, just maybe even on the basis that like, you're one of the taller guys in our parish and I'm the shortest. So, it, <laughs> <laughs> so that, that kind of lines us up, up uh, well. And then also in your, you know, in the day job with the work that you're doing, just being so connected through one of the other, I think founder and partner uh, at, at the, uh, at the, at your cardiology practice in the Aratis and, you know, my, uh, just, you know, growing up as a guitarist with, with John Paul, their son, just put us so close on the radar that it was, it was only a matter of time until we were able to become friends. And it's been great to uh, get to know you and, and Marion, uh, uh, more, and then, you know, get involved in the ministry work that we've done together too. Absolutely. Absolutely. The, the Lord pours, pulls people together for sure. It's a, it's a small world, but I wouldn't want to paint it. And with the, with the adventure of the school, all the glory goes to God because it's truly, it, it's just beyond comprehension of when you go and try to start something like this. If you just do it with manpower, uh, you know, it will, it'll go away quickly. But if, if you keep your eyes focused on Christ, that's been my mantra. And basically, we're just trying to get people to heaven. That's the ultimate goal. Children parents, teachers, and, and it's really attracted teachers that one of the first questions is, are you able to love your students? Mm. And, and if a teacher can't love their students, then they're not going to be able to convey the material and do it in, a, in just such a joyful manner. And to bring joy back to the, the classroom, that's been such a beautiful, beautiful thing to see. That's how education should be. It's literally... Chesterton said it's the passing of one soul from one generation to the next. And that's a, that's a tremendous responsibility that I'm glad uh, 
we're trying to do it the right way. Yeah. And I love that concept of what you just threw there too. It's like, if you love what you're doing, then you like, like if you're, if you're where you need to be and, and you're currently in the role that God has called you to, and you're, you're comfortable in your own skin, then joy and love should be radiating through your heart because you know that you're doing the job that you were meant to do. And I agree with you that there's so many times that so many professionals basically maybe just end up getting stuck and just doing what they think that they're supposed to be doing without being able to have that level of prayer and discernment. And then, yeah, you're right that you like, if you're, if you find like you're in a role where you're even just having to leverage your weaknesses all day in order to be successful, I'm sure that could be exhausting and, and tiring and then be able to, you know, not be able to have that same love of loving the, the people that are in your flock in that role that you're called to do as well. And that, uh, you know, I learned that lesson from my dad, who's a big, burly, very strong man that I would never cross. Uh, but he went right out of high school to the Marines mm. and did, did three years with the Marines during the Korean War although he never saw combat uh, and then went from right from the Marines to being a prison guard. And that was his first job and did that until he was 40 and then started night class on the GI bill and worked full time and went to school at night to get his bachelor's and then got his master's in education and ended up teaching in the prison system. Wow. And and, you know, he knew the, the prison guard was a tough life and he, and he didn't like it. And that was his big lesson that he really wanted us to, to have opportunities and do something that we really loved because he did not love his job. And says, if you, if you love what you're doing, then you'll never work a day in your life. Mm-hmm. And that's been a focus of, of discernment. I try to teach my kids is not, you know, you want to do where your natural talents are, but just don't shoot for worldly success because that that can just lead in misery and there's so many very successful people at the top of the pyramids that are just absolutely miserable and they're not they're not fulfilling what they were called truly to do amen yeah i think that uh even just looking at the news we find example after example of example of these people that are at the top of their professional class, but then in their personal life, it's an absolute train wreck and disaster. And uh, you're right that, uh, you know, I think we've both gone down that pathway too of recognizing that money and success only gets you so far of, of uh, joy in life. And it's definitely, you can get there and then end up getting to this place where you're like, why am I feeling like I've accomplished everything I set out to accomplish, but then I feel so miserable inside. Um, so, so thank you, uh, Sean. Wanted to pivot, and uh, before we kind of go, you know, deeper into the virtue road, wanted to kind of talk through some of the the you know the antonym to virtue of vices. Can you speak mm-hmm. to a little bit of some of the vices that you've had to overcome in order to reach the leadership capability that you have today? I think one of the one of my weaknesses early on was procrastination. There's always a, a guy with when a, a paper was due or a test was due, kind of wait to the last minute and then cram for it. And it's just a, a horrible way to put off what can be done tomorrow. Let's do it tomorrow. And just through some tough lessons in life, I've learned 
you know, I forget who has the five second rule, but if you think of it, just do it at that moment within five seconds, just act on the impulse, make the phone call, write the letter, write the email, write the text. If you think of it, cause it, and that's one of the devil's tactics is just do it later. Cause he knows later will never come and you won't set your, you won't meet your goals. You won't. And that's part of being virtuous is just being diligent to the tasks of the day and, and not being, uh, you know, I could kick back and be as lazy as the next guy. But I think when you set goals, set tasks, and don't procrastinate, that's been one of the most important lessons. And then pride in, in self-reliant. It's, uh, you know, being a very proud person, it's hard for me to accept help, and especially for my family. And so as I'm trying to grow and, and humility is just to be open to letting other people help me and, and it, just see the joy in their face. When you do that, the little things of even just picking up your plate after dinner, uh, it's a, it's a lesson of service. And that's what I really want to teach my kids is the, the one who serves the most wins. Mm. Well, thank you for your um, vulnerability to share that with our listeners. And yeah, just thinking about uh, just, I, I think, you know, in, in thinking about asking that question, procrastination was probably the last thing that I was ever thinking that would come out of your mouth to <laughs> respond to that question, just because of, you know, what you're currently doing between running a high school and being on the board, being a founder and being on the board for a high school a startup high school and six year. And then in addition to that, being a, being a physician, heart doctor, nonetheless. So, so both of those things seem like, you know, if you're a procrastinator, there's no way in that <laughs> either of those things would be able to, to be accomplished and realized. Um, so I think about, yeah, just kind of thinking, I, I think you gave a, a beautiful tip about like, just, just that rule that like, if it, it's going to take you five seconds, just do it. Like stop thinking about it, stop putting it off, just get it done and execute. Um, but can you think about like, I'm just kind of curious, like how your journey was with that? Or was it just like, you said that it was like, you know, kind of like the school of hard knocks of just getting beaten around. Can you maybe speak to a little bit more about how your eyes were opened on that? And it, and it starts with the morning, right? When the alarm goes off, I think St. Jose Maria called that the heroic minute. I think Matthew Kelly has expanded on that of making the decision not to snooze <laughs> and your morning will be just so much less stressful. If you get up when you're supposed to, when you plan to, and don't put it off, don't put off getting out of bed and literally like, are you any more rested after eight minutes? <laughs> that thing goes back off and, and doing that. And then just the quality of the work I was doing especially learning uh, during medical school, if you, if you put it off and just try to cram it all in it at one time, it, it's just not going to be a quality retention. And if you do it little by little, slow and steady, then at the end of the, end of the day, you're just going to be a better student, better acquisition of knowledge from that. And those were just, you know, life lessons from eight years of, going through the grind of higher education in my twenties and that coming out in, in residency, you didn't have a choice. 
the tasks were so many, you couldn't procrastinate. And it just kind of reinforced that, that, that get her done mentality. Now a word from our sponsors. Have you been feeling unfulfilled? One of the best ways to experience joy is by caring for the homeless. A charity that I've grown to love, River of Light, food rescues a million meals per year for the needy in Chicago. Imagine how that make you feel knowing that you're helping feed homeless children and veterans. To make a tax-deductible donation, please visit riveroflightchicago.org. Again, that URL is riveroflightchicago.org. No one should go to bed hungry. Yeah, I love that. Well, well, thank you for sharing. And I feel like I, I, I don't really struggle that much with that nowadays. Um, you know, it's just kind of that same thing that you said, like if it's something that should be instantaneous, like just get it done. And, mm-hmm. but I do know that there's others in my life that, that kind of like may not have the same gifting of, of being able to like, you know, have that vision and then instantly move to execution. And, uh, but, and I think that that's a, just a uh, insight for those that are struggling in that way and how to uh, be able to overcome that. So, so thank you for sharing in that uh, regard. So now wanted to now move into the other side of that, Sean, of, on the virtue side. What are uh, some of the virtues that you feel like have been naturally gifted to you by God that you were able to master at, a, at an early age? Working. My, my dad instilled that, uh, you know, very humble upbringing, four kids. My mom stayed home to raise us, um, but we didn't lack for anything. Hmm. And he just, he just taught us the value of hard work. You know, if you want something, set your goals and then just work for it. And that's the American dream. And, and I was able to, to see that in friends and family and do that. I've always had a good sense of humor and that's uh, certainly been very helpful, especially during the dark times of, of medicine. And we have to see a lot of tragedy. Sometimes humor can be a mature coping mechanism to help us, help us deal with uh, the heavy issues and just being patient and and a good listener is things I've been really trying to work on, especially in my medical practice of reading between the lines and, and seeing what's really going on. And, and I think in these times, especially during COVID, that a lot of people are just running on passions, especially during the political season. And I read a, I read a great book by Jonathan Haidt called The Righteous Mind. And it talks about we all have these emotions, this, this passionate reason that drives a lot of what we do. And it's like a 700-pound like elephant. And on top of that is a little rider trying to control it. And that's logic. And that's our cognitive reasoning, where we kind of balance the facts and the intellectual thought processes with the emotions. And I've been trying to, to do that, especially during the covid because it, it tends to be a very emotional topic for a lot of people, yeah. especially in healthcare. And 
and I found that's been a unique place for me is to be the middle ground and the more rational, logical thinker in dealing what's the best way to handle this, both from, from opening churches to open schools to medical practice to dealing with my patients one-on-one. Um, that skill set has come in handy. Yeah, so so can you tell me, yeah, so just can you dive into that a little bit more? Uh, I guess I'm, <laughs> forgive me for, for missing that. Um, so so what do you mean and how that applies to being able to, you know, as we start to open up? Dealing with COVID in general, you know, there's, there's people that, and, uh, and they're well-meaning people that have just denied its existence, that this is just another flu. And then I've had several patients that think this is the bubonic plague and are afraid to, to leave their house. And so, and some folks think it's all hogwash, this lockdown and just open everything up, let it rip to, you know, you can't tell me what to do wearing a mask or, you know, I think everybody should wear a mask and in those those harsh confrontations that can happen in public spaces where people get confronted if they're not wearing a mask in a, in a public place. So trying to just have reasonable conversations, understand where people are coming from and assume they have good intentions. I think it, we often assume people have bad intentions from the get-go and, and trying to see the good in everybody and just understand their side of the story, where they're coming from, and can we meet at middle ground? Um, and that, you know, a lot of my older patients now have been vaccinated, but they're they're afraid to leave the house or get back to church, get back to the store. And the data looks pretty good. I mean, it's a 100% protective against hospitalization and death. Mm-hmm. I think that's pretty good protection. So take comfort in that. Don't be alarmed by the news when they're talking about these variants and things are getting worse. You're protected. And so let's look at the science behind that, make a good decision in in terms of risks and benefits. And getting back with your family and having a gathering is is safe if you're in in that position. Got it. Okay. Understood. And yeah, I I agree that it seems like it's been such polar opposites within the pandemic that you're either like it's it's a hoax or or we need to wear our masks in everything that we do and uh, and the middle ground doesn't really seem to be then so you're right that when you when those two different uh, schools of thought can meet it's easy to be able to have a quick clash instead of being able to empathize and see where they're coming from and uh, and I would imagine you know I'm I'm, I'm blessed in that you know, being in consulting that we really don't have much interaction at all with, with clients and thus, you know, Zoom calls like this allow, you know, it's that, it's that much easier to be able to just do the work. And it actually has helped us as consultants because previously it was either like, well, you know, some clients were just kind of like, we're either going to do everything via phone or you're going to get on a flight and, and be out here face to face. And so, this is kind of like just broke that down that like now everyone, you know, if you can't video chat, then you're basically just like losing out. And I don't even know how, how you can do that from a work standpoint. So, so yeah, so uh, 
just, yeah, just thinking about, so it's been easy, it's been more of a blessing for us as consultants, but, you know, some industries like yourself, where it, it is, there is no virtual work, <laughs> you're not going to be able to have virtual heart surgery. And so you have to be able to be in person to do that. And, and so where people are, I can imagine only the frustration that some doctors have had to had and uh, you know, we do a lot of work within the healthcare industry. And so I know that people on the primary care side have struggled mightily with people kind of pushing a lot of those procedures that are necessary off just due to fear. And that can end up making your life that much worse. And then also, as you're stating, it's like the other element with that too, is that if you're holed up, then what kind of life is that even to be living in the first place too? I, you know, it was shocking to me driving around uh, on Easter weekend and seeing in in my parents' neighborhood that there was no cars. Like there were no cars at people's houses. And uh, yeah, just, just continually to be um, uh, just, yeah, not, not being able to meet with your loved ones and see each other eye to eye and be able to embrace one another and see each other smile and laugh. It, it's, uh, it's tough. And, and I know a lot of people have been hit hard by that. But I think I think you're definitely right of just being able to, you know, really understand where they're coming from, have empathy. Now I probably err on the side of, you know, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, just, you know, you just get frustrated being kind of like younger and in that generation that, you know, I haven't had a ton of people around me that are facing COVID. So I, I don't know, I would probably, I came off on the side of like thinking, oh, maybe this is a hoax and all of that stuff. But then, you know, more and more people around me started not necessarily like in my family, but people within my network started to get it. Some people had died or like some people in my network had fam loved ones that had died. So it just like made it, made it more real. So I kind of just been sitting in more of the middle, but I think that as we you know, go past a year and the vaccination starts to go out, you start to get a little frustrated, you know, putting on masks to do different stuff. And I, you know, I hope that, you know, we can, as we move into the summer of 2021, that, that COVID becomes a thing of the past, we could all burn our masks and move on with our lives. That's my hope as well. I think things are going to get a little darker before they get brighter, uh, in the next month or two. But I think, uh, the, the vaccines vaccines have proven safe and effective. And, and to speak of that, uh, it was interesting, you know, we, in the early shutdown period, we, we dabbled in telehealth and it just leaves a lot to be desired. And I remember sitting in a medical staff meeting with 300 doctors and a consultant warning us three years ago, like you are all blockbuster and Netflix is coming online. And you are going to be obsolete because telehealth will be the standard of care. And, you know, for my practice, you know, I see a fair amount of 70, 80, 90 year olds and trying to get them up and running on technology, like to get a video chat going. And I get so much information from just seeing the patient walk from the waiting room to the door, how straight up they are. Are they holding, you know, short of breath and then short distance, the nonverbals that you just miss. And I think you're going to even see, even in the consulting world, you're going to see once the data starts coming out, that actually a phone call could be more informative than the, the video interaction, especially when there's more than one person, is that your mind is processing all these little squares. It just gets overwhelmed. And, and you can't, 
you know, it's it, you're trying to read all the nonverbal cues, and it's like, is that guy really eating Cheetos over there in the top <laughs> left? <laughs> yeah, you're right. I I actually try to minimize just to one square. Oftentimes, if it's a big conference call, just because it burns you out to try to be present with that many people at a given time, and. And yeah, that, and, and I know I read another article where they said it's actually very helpful for your mind that if you don't have to do video chats, shut down the video and just do a call because it is, it is a lot to just burn your mind out to be on video chats for the entire day. So it is, I, I'm so excited to be able to read some of the studies post pandemic of, of all the like, you know, things that went, that went well and things that were opportunities that if this ever happens that we were huge blunders. Uh, Hannah and I were were in a store not this weekend last weekend we were just dying laughing about some of those like memes and pictures that people had uh, I know you know maybe it's too soon to be laughing about some of this stuff but there was like one guy who had a pizza taped to his face as a mask and just like oh my gosh just just some of those photos that you know just like when when the masks weren't like readily available and people were just making blunders on that it's just so funny um so then last question Sean uh, thinking about, you know, yourself as a, as a virtuous leader, you know, I think the other element that I've been finding um, in virtuous leaders is that they've been able to, you know, I don't want to say master, but have, have done a lot of an investment within themselves of self-knowledge and, and they understand kind of like where they are within their own walk. So just kind of curious if there's any virtues that you're presently uh, currently working on or vices that you've kind of like discerned within your own self and, and being trying to like work on that to show up in, in a more virtuous leadership way. In the busyness of life, my main focus is to find uh, solitude, at least uh, a small portion of the day to just shut everything down and to quiet yourself uh, in a time of prayer and before you attack the day. I think that's something. And then one of the hardest things I felt called to do is review the day at the end hmm. to kind of look at the highlights like a coach would look at, at tape, uh, practice film, and review it and to see, you know, where, where you excelled and then where were you not your strongest self and, and what can we do tomorrow to correct that? Uh, those are the things I'm, I'm working on right now. Awesome. Well, yeah, the examine is so powerful. And, and I found that, that I've, I don't know for, I think I heard a Matthew Kelly talk on it. And then this was like, really when I first entered into the kingdom for the, like in the first year, like the exam and was like, okay, Matthew's saying that this is what I need to do. I'm just going to do it. And, and that shifted over time to making it more prophetic and rather than like, okay, Chris, where were, where were you the best version of yourself today? Chris, where were you the worst version? But shifting that conversation to, okay, God, you know, where did I see you today? God, why should I be thankful? God, where was I the best version of myself? God, where was I the worst version? And just shutting up and then letting God uh, be able to speak to you uh, in those moments, I find is so, so helpful for ex like expanding the prophetic 
and give in just going through that routine of hearing God's voice when you're in prayer. And then actually, so if we're talking about God's voice, I think the other question that I wanted to ask you that maybe I was too scared to ask you before as I'm getting my courage up is, you know, just thinking about being a doctor and uh, I, I'm just blown away to think about the fact that, you know, part of your, your job is to actually have to deal with death and to, to meet people into that space. Just can you speak a little bit about that journey and uh, uh, mainly like how you've been able to, to grow with that? Because I, I would imagine a newbie doctor having to deal with that was probably like terrified of those conversations. And, uh, but I, you know, I would imagine that that's probably something that's pretty critical for you to be able to do that, to, uh, to meet your, your patients, families that have passed away. That's definitely one of the hardest parts of the job. And when you're, I think early in training, one of the, one of the first coping mechanisms is just to not develop relationships with the patient and you're kind of cold and aloof and it's just a job. So if you're not attached, it's not that much of a loss and you don't open yourself up. Um, then you realize you're a horrible doctor. <laughs> That's not good. <laughs> so you dive in to everyone's misery as well, but you have to find that middle ground where you're empathetic and compassionate and you walk with them and you can't take away all their pain. Ultimately, I'm a, I'm a failure. I'm never going to have any, any of my patients are going to live forever. They're all destined to go back to dust. And my job is to hopefully prolong that process and, and to make it a better quality along the duration. And, and I find praying, especially uh, before procedures and doing surgery, I pray the physician prayer which is what Mother Teresa prayed before she went out to work every day. And you're just asking for that humility and that you know all good comes from God and you just want to be a channel so that I'm never going in the operating room alone, that I have, uh, that I take him with me, uh, Joseph and Mary, in the process. And in dealing with my patients, especially when they enter hospice, I'll sometimes do house calls and go pray with them in their, in their dying moments. And at that moment, I've just found tremendous grace in the, uh, the chaplet of divine mercy is just such a blessing coming from St. Faustina and St. John Paul II, uh, out of Poland as a prayer for the dying is super powerful. And if you ever listen to Drew Mariani on relevant radio, that guy prays it like, like nobody else just so compassionate and it just shows the power of prayer. Miracles can happen. And uh, if not, at least peace. And, and that's where we shouldn't be afraid of dying. We know it's inevitable. And especially if we, if we believe and we're Christians and we know this isn't the end of the story, that's tremendous hope. And you just want to bring dignity to the process. Uh, and that's my job as a physician. When I can't cure, then I focus on caring and walking with that patient uh, to the finish line and making sure they cross it well and, and are not full of despair. And, the, and it's great to see patients who are strong believers. They're not afraid. And it is so beautiful to see. 
it's the agnostics, the atheists that are unsure, doubting, are the most afraid. They want everything done. They want, they're so afraid to die and just trying to, to walk with them and say, you know, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And that's, that's uh, my approach to that, that difficult topic. Interesting. Yeah. Cause just thinking about, you know, really it's, it's about control. <laughs> and, and so what, you know, in those moments, I think that's probably, it's interesting that you probably have a viewpoint on that so much stronger than most people would of being able to see the way that, you know, so many different people with different beliefs, how they pass. And just as you're saying that if you, if the your experience has been that people that don't have faith are basically like, we need to have perfect everything. The surgery needs to be perfect because there's so, there's so much fear that they don't know what's going to happen. They don't have the ability to control that next level that happens beyond that. And it's interesting that, you know, the believers that you've encountered that, that past that are at that stage, that there's so much more peace with it because they realize that there is an everlasting glory beyond um, just what we're experiencing here on earth. So that's beautifully said. So thank you for sharing that, Sean. How can people get a hold of the work that you're doing Um and uh, yeah, both both at Chesterton and, and uh, the day job too. I encourage everybody to visit the website of the high school and to see what uh, quality high school education that's creating saints in the future leaders looks like. We have amazing videos on the homepage. It's www.cathf.com. And for my professional career, my, our website is www.heartcc.com. And we have all of our services, our offices, and all of our wonderful physicians listed there on an informative website as well. Great. And we'll include those in the show notes as well. And uh, just so encouraged by your episode today. Uh, Sean, can you close us out by praying for our listeners that they would be uh, to be able to have the same graces that you've received in your own life. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We ask the dear Lord in this Easter season to let us be a people of hope, to pour down his Holy Spirit on all those that hear this podcast, that it opened up their hearts, minds, and wills to all of the graces that he wants to bestow on them that he has conquered sin and death and we do not need to be afraid and that we can live to our fullest selves. We ask all this in the name of Lord Jesus Christ in union with the Holy Spirit under God forever and ever. Amen. 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 We'll love you, brother. Thank you so much for being a part of the podcast and uh, look forward to continuing the dialogue with you. All right. Hey, Chris here. Hope you enjoyed the episode where we discussed all things going bald. <laughs> Just joking. The Leading Virtuously podcast. If you enjoyed the episode and the podcast, will you please subscribe on YouTube or Apple Podcasts or Spotify? Or you could also share it with a friend. That would be tubular. I hope you have an awesome day.